You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of the Disease Du Jour podcast on Lyme disease and horses with Dr. Toby Pin Woodcock. I'm your host, Carly Sisson, digital editor of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2024 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Toby Pin Woodcock is a member of the Veterinary Support Services team at the Cornell Animal Health Diagnostic Center and a clinician in Large Animal Internal Medicine Service at the Cornell Equine and Nemo Farm Animal Hospital. Dr. Pin Woodcock received her doctorate in veterinary medicine from the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine in 2008, after which she completed a residency in large animal internal medicine at Cornell. She spent six years in private practice, which included equine ambulatory and referral practice, large animal production medicine, and companion animal practice. She returned to Cornell in 2018 in her current role at the AHDC and the College of Veterinary Medicine. Her areas of interest and research include large animal infectious disease and equine endocrinology. Welcome, Dr. Penn Woodcock, to this episode of Disease Du Jour. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about Lyme disease today. This is obviously a pretty common disease that practitioners might hear about from their clients. Do you want to start out by talking a little bit about the history of Lyme disease? When was it first identified in the United States and where is it most prevalent today? Absolutely. So just to start off with, Lyme disease among equine practitioners is a little bit controversial, but I'll do my best to talk about what's known today and review that. So back in the late 1970s, there was a group of about 50 children in the Lyme, Connecticut region with juvenile arthritis. That was recognized to be associated with a tick bite. And then in the early 80s, they identified Borrelia burgdorferi as the causative agent in that child arthritis. So 1980s is when we first named Lyme disease as being caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, and our knowledge has grown from there. The region um, that's most affected are regions where Ixodes ticks exist, so Ixodes scapularis in the east and Ixodes pacificus in the west both can carry Borrelia burgdorferi. And the region of Ixodes is expanding. But in general, where I'm most familiar in the northeast is where where we see the tick being most prominent. And how long has Lyme disease been recognized in horses specifically? Oh, good question. Probably some of the earlier case reports are maybe in the late 90s. And I think it's really been in the last 20 years, 15 to 20 years, that we've started to learn more about the different conditions in horses associated with Borrelia burgdorferi. So what are some of the clinical signs of Lyme disease that practitioners should look out for in their clients? Well, that's probably one of the more controversial questions about Lyme disease in horses, jumping right right in. So there is a study that describes what practitioners feel are clinical signs of Lyme disease. Those differ from what's in the literature as far as conditions associated with Borrelia burgdorferi in the horse. So what we have been able to show by finding a PCR-positive specimens, tissues with Borrelia burgdorferi are that uveitis, so inflammation in the eye, 
pseudolymphoma, which is inflammation in the skin at the site of the tick bite, neuroborreliosis, which is a neurologic form of Lyme disease, and probably the newest recognized condition associated with Borrelia burgdorferi is nuchal bursitis or pole evil. Those are the conditions where Borrelia burgdorferi PCR positive tissue has been identified. Now, practitioners also feel that they see lameness, attitude change, back soreness, shifting leg lameness, and a variety of maybe of other clinical signs associated with Borrelia burgdorferi infection. But unfortunately, those conditions haven't been able to be well replicated in, in, in the very few infection trials that have been, been performed. Therefore, it's hard to find strong evidence for that. But there's research ongoing all the time, and I'm sure that we'll learn more as we go. So do horses usually develop acute clinical signs, or do they maybe have clinical signs for a while, or does it really vary by the case? It may vary by the case. And when we talk about, it's hard because of varied opinions on what the clinical signs are. What's nice is we have some diagnostic testing, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail in a little bit, but some of the diagnostics that we can perform show us outer surface protein antibodies that the horse produces in response to exposure to Borrelia, and various antibodies are formed at various time points in infection. And that can give us a little bit of an idea of how long the horse has maybe been infected for or when their exposure occurred? Was it a few weeks ago or more likely months or even years ago? So some horses might begin to present with one of these conditions associated with Borrelia, and uh, they may have evidence of more acute exposure as in, in within weeks, or they may show evidence of months to years. So it does vary. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health. Merck Animal Health believes that if we all do right by the horse, we'll never do wrong. That's why they're driven by an unconditional commitment to the horse and to the veterinarians and communities who support them. From infectious disease tracking through the Equine Respiratory Biosurveillance Program, to building a sustainable profession through the Veterinary Wellbeing Study, to creating equine health products with the highest level of safety and efficacy, Merck Animal Health is unconditional. It's just who they are. Learn more at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. Maybe we can jump into talking about testing for Lyme disease now. How reliably do you feel that we can diagnose a horse with Lyme disease or test a horse for exposure to Lyme disease? Well, I feel that we can very reliably test a horse for exposure to Lyme disease. We have tests that do a good job of identifying the presence of antibodies produced after infection. So that's great. So those are serology tests, and there are a variety out there. They range from a Western blot to ELISA's, and then there is bead-based multiplex assay. The Western blot and the multiplex assay, they both have the ability to look at these different outer surface protein antibodies, which are outer surface protein or OSP-A, OSP-C, and OSP-F. And OSP-A, we believe, is produced potentially early in infection because that's the outer surface protein expressed by Borrelia in the tick gut and the horse's immune system 
we'll see that outer surface protein potentially early in infection. However, we also are starting to recognize, especially now that we're investigating the nuchal bursitis cases more, that it does seem like horses with chronic infection will also have high levels of OSPA. Um, and then to um, further confuse matters, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the future here, um, vaccines contain OSPA antibody as well. So when you have elevated OSPA, it can potentially um, reflect early infection, very early, potentially chronic infection, or prior vaccination. So it's really actually very important to know your horse's history and your the vaccination history, particularly when you're interpreting these tests. The outer surface protein C antibody is produced within about, or we can detect it within about three to five weeks of exposure or infection. And the outer surface protein F antibody um, is typically produced five to eight weeks following uh, infection, and it does tend to hang around for a long time, months to years. So, so we try to put all of that information together to give us a timeline about when the horse, when their immune system might have seen the Borrelia organism and whether it's potentially still stimulating the immune system, so still present, so ongoing infection. The 40X SNAP test that's out there for dogs, some practitioners have utilized that in horses that looks for um, protein antibody. And that gives you a little less information regarding the timeline of um, exposure. And then I should mention that, and as I already have, that once with certain conditions where, where we're able to collect fluid from the eye, tissue such as synovium or skin, and these various conditions I've mentioned, uveitis, pseudolymphoma, neuroborreliosis, so CSF, or post-mortem spinal cord potentially, we would try to find the organism itself using PCR. So do you want to jump into talking about treatments for Lyme disease and how would you determine which horses you would treat immediately versus which horses might have been harboring this infection for a while? Sure. So I guess I'll just start off by saying that Sometimes owners would like to do a surveillance or screening of their horse to determine if they've been exposed. And sometimes a horse with no recognized clinical signs will have an elevated titer, showing that they were exposed and may be infected still. However, uh, we don't recommend doing that because it's very difficult to decide, you know, what to do with that information. And while I can't say that this has um, been proven in the literature, it's possible that the horse's clinical signs or lack thereof do may not correlate at all with the magnitude of the antibody levels that are seen on serology tests, such as the multiplex assay. So therefore, owners can get pretty concerned when they see a very high titer and they may want the practitioner to treat and you get into a, you know, that's, that's a challenging situation to navigate sometimes. So I'll just start off by saying screening horses for Borrelia can, can get you into a tough situation with deciding whether to use antimicrobials or not. When a practitioner believes that a horse has a condition associated with Borrelia that they want to treat, 
the first thing to do is to rule out other causes of those clinical signs. So Borrelia burgdorferi in horses should always be, or at this point, we, we feel that it should be a diagnosis of exclusion um, because many of the clinical signs can be caused by other etiologies and sometimes other etiologies that are far more common. Um, so for example, if we think shifting leg lameness is existing in our patient, then we probably want to look for some of the other common causes of shifting leg lameness, such as possibly arthritis, other musculoskeletal injury, vitamin E deficiency, maybe selenium deficiency, depending on what part of the country you live in, et cetera. If you have done a good job of ruling out all those causes, then you want to determine whether the horse has been exposed to Borrelia using one of the diagnostic tests that I've already discussed. If the horse has been exposed and you feel like you've come to that point where you want to initiate some sort of treatment, then we don't have any evidence pointing us towards one treatment or another versus another as far as efficacy. We don't have any real strong evidence. Typically, the antimicrobials that are that are kind of the go-tos are either something that's a tetracycline. We have intravenous oxytetracycline or we have oral minocycline, which is thought to penetrate, possibly penetrate the joints in the central nervous system a little bit better than doxycycline. And then um, the third generation cephalosporins have also been utilized in some cases that are in the literature. So those are like the go-to options. And once treatment's been initiated, it's you know, you can use some of these quantitative antibody assays like the multiplex, the Lyme multiplex to see if you have reduction in antibody levels that might possibly indicate that you are having response to treatment. It's also important to remember when considering response to treatment in horses with suspected diagnosis of Lyme disease, that the tetracycline antibiotics can have anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and so during the time the horse is under treatment, their clinical signs can respond to those anti-inflammatory properties, especially if the horse actually ends up having some sort of musculoskeletal abnormality leading to its clinical signs. Um, you may see improvement. Um, and then when tetracycline antibiotics are stopped, you may see those clinical signs reoccur. Um, so it's hard in those cases to determine whether the clinical signs resolved secondary to the antimicrobial treatment or secondary to the anti-inflammatory properties of the antibiotics. Um, so that can leave you in a, a questioning situation and might require more diagnostics to get to the bottom of what's actually going on. And then finally, always consider judicious use of antimicrobials when considering whether or not to treat a horse for Lyme disease. Another reason to make it a diagnosis of exclusion and feel as confident as possible that you think the horse has Lyme before you start using antibiotics. Can horses ever really be cured of Lyme disease or is it something that becomes a chronic condition? I think that is hard to say definitively. There has been some work that has shown that horses infected by placing Borrelia burgdorferi infected ticks on those horses, horses that have been infected in that way, the researchers have found that organism in their body, you know, months later, suggesting that they were 
chronically infected. And when horses in that same group were treated, they were unable to find Borrelia burgdorferi after treatment. So it does seem possible that treatment might be able to eliminate infection, potentially things that might improve the success of treatment could be treating the horse in the earlier phases of infection. Again, there's not a lot of evidence to really support or refute what I'm saying. We extrapolate a lot from the human literature and then also just anecdotally practitioners kind of clinical opinions on how their patients respond. So it may be possible to eliminate the infection with adequate treatment. Also, I would say that from my personal experience and practice where I've worked through that rubric and sort of treated after eliminating other possible causes of the clinical signs I was seeing, I had horses that it seemed like they would respond initially to treatment, but after stopping treatment, they would recrudesce their clinical signs. Um, now, whether I was treating Borrelia for sure or something else, I can't say, um, but I think some practitioners may have the clinical sense that some horses are more difficult to successfully eliminate infection from. Now, do you normally recommend retesting for Borrelia following treatment, or do you stop treatment based on clinical sign resolution? So you can base your decision to stop treatment on several on several factors. One would certainly be response to treatment. You know, after appropriate course of antimicrobials, seeing their clinical signs resolve. But you can also use some of the, these diagnostics that look at antibody levels to help support that decision. So wanting to see more than a 50% reduction in the magnitude of their antibody titers can support the fact that the horse's immune system is responding to the treatment you've provided. That in combination with resolution of clinical signs may give you the confidence to stop treatment. So maybe now we can jump into talking a little bit about the recommended vaccination protocols against Lyme disease. Yeah, certainly it'd be better to prevent our horses from becoming infected than um, trying to catch up and, and treat them knowing that it's such an ambiguous situation. So there are several vaccines on the market for dogs. None of these vaccines are USDA approved for use in horses. So therefore, they're being used off-label. And in doing so, we're kind of all assuming the liability that if the horse has a reaction, there may not be a lot of support from the manufacturer. That being said, there are several studies out there looking at the different vaccines that exist, looking at their efficacy. And so some of these vaccines are only protecting the horse by promoting their OSP-A antibody levels. Others have both OSP-A and OSP-C in them. And again, this is really important to know when you're trying to interpret um, serology testing, but at any rate, um, what, what we've come to know about vaccines from the literature and from the research that's been done and published is some horses will respond to the various vaccines. There are also horses out there that are non-responders. After vaccination, they may not produce an antibody response. And those horses that do respond to vaccination, for the most part, they maintain a robust titer only for a few months. So unlike other vaccines we have, such as those that are very effective, like 
Tripoli and West Nile vaccines, just to give an example. Those vaccines have been shown that after the appropriate initial vaccination followed by appropriate booster series, the like Tripoli and West Nile vaccines produce a nice antibody response that most horses maintain for a year, and then a booster is recommended. In comparison with these Lyme vaccines, the canine Lyme vaccine used in horses, horses only maintain a robust titer for a few months, most horses at any rate. Therefore, it would be important to booster this vaccine at least every six months in order to maintain robust antibody levels. And these vaccines haven't been proven to prevent Lyme disease in horses. So those studies have not been done yet, unfortunately. Therefore, it's important for the practitioner to have this kind of conversation with the owner before they go ahead and vaccinate um, to make sure the owner really understands, you know, what they're starting because it's something they'll have to keep up with, ideally vaccinating and boostering the horse more than once a year. I will say, just from my own personal experience, to interject that, I used the a canine Lyme vaccine in practice and did not have any um, negative reactions. So I guess that's that's the silver lining is um, while it may not help, it hasn't seemed, in my opinion, to hurt the horses that it's been administered to. Great. Well, that seems pretty promising. Is that something that you would recommend more regionally for horses in the Northeast or other areas where the disease is prevalent versus the blanket recommendation for across the country? Yeah, so we have what we consider our core vaccines and the vaccination against Borrelia is not core. So definitely regionally, um, also potentially based on your, the horse's level of risk. You know, are they spending a lot of time in environments um, where ticks like to live. So ticks love brushy, wooded environments. And so if your horse is out on a really nicely mowed pasture or dirt lot, for example, their exposure to ticks may be re reduced. But if you take that horse out on trails, of course, take them out of that environment, then there is a level of risk. I think most owners have an idea of how at risk their horses are just based on how many ticks they're picking off of them. You know, ticks love to be in the throat latch region, you know, between the mandible and the axilla in the inguinal region and elsewhere. They can be anywhere. And a lot of owners that are, you know, grooming their horses will find them. And so they kind of know, gosh, I'm finding tons of ticks on my horse. Maybe I should think about whether or not to protect them against Lyme disease. Now, what are some of the other ways that practitioners can help owners protect their horses against disease? Maybe like some on-horse protection, pasture management strategies? There are a few other strategies that exist. You know, there are a few insecticide type products out there, permethrin and pyrethrin products that are applied topically. Some of them are labeled for the like prevention of ticks um, and some of them are not, you know. I wouldn't say any of them are foolproof. You know, there are also these, so there are sprays, there are spot-ons that maybe are supposed to last a few weeks. None of them seem to be the only solution. So using those kinds of products, in addition to frequent grooming, in addition to trying to manage the environment, as you said. So as I mentioned, the ticks love these brushy, environments and they will hang out and they do this questing behavior where they kind of are waiting on that brush for 
a large mammalian host like the horse to walk by and then they'll kind of reach out and grab on. So if we can reduce those kinds of pasture settings, um, then that can also reduce the number of ticks on our horses. Also, if we can reduce the habitat for some of the other hosts of Borrelia, for example, the white-footed mouse in the east. And so like having wood piles or open grain bins or things that mice like to get into, if we can sort of reduce those environments in the regions of our, our horses. So maybe the ticks that are around are less likely to be infected um, with Borrelia, then, you know, that's something else we can do. It doesn't, it seems a little bit futile. There are a lot of ticks in the Northeast that are carrying Borrelia. And in some of the zero uh, prevalence surveys, the number of horses living in an endemic area that have evidence of exposure based on their antibody levels is 60% or more. So we're leaning towards the most horses living in an endemic area have been exposed. Well, I think this has been a really great discussion about Lyme disease, pretty comprehensive look at the disease. Do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Just just to remain open-minded about the subject, owners really zero in on it, but we just have to take a step back and say, okay, these clinical signs can be caused by a variety of other conditions. Let's rule those out um, before we really zero in on um, diagnosing this patient with active Borrelia infection. And then some of the samples that go beyond just antibody levels, but actually PCR testing are hard to collect. So we're talking about joint fluid, ocular fluid, spinal fluid. And so sometimes you just have to, um, sometimes we have to make the most educated decision we can. And so again, I I uh, sympathize with all the equine practitioners out there who are trying to navigate this topic with their owners and with their patients. It's not straightforward or black and white. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Penn Woodcock, for joining us on this episode of Disease Du Jour. And thank you to our audience for listening. And a special thank you to our 2024 sponsor, Merck Animal Health, who gives us the opportunity to have these discussions. If you have any questions or suggestions for the Disease Du Jour podcast, you can send me an email at ccisson at equinenetwork.com. That's C-S-I-S-S-O-N at equinenetwork.com. Mm-hmm.